Our scripture reading tonight is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Please listen as I read. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is the one who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. Let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you that as we're gathered here within these walls this evening, we have the privilege of uh, turning toward a God who loves us infinitely, who created us, and who desires to not only know us, but to fill us with nothing less than the divine life of Christ, in order that we might function as whole people, spirit, soul, and body, uh, rivers of hope flowing out from us collectively and individually into our world. Would you equip us toward that end even this evening, Father, as we gather? We'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, if you would. Good to be with you tonight as we start a new series. A new series called Portrait. And uh, I know that you've only had one kind of sharing question this evening, but I'm going to ask, we're going to do one more little quick sharing here uh, in a moment. Uh, and, and it's around this topic that I began with. So let's just say here that uh, you need to tell someone a story, and this is the story. You need to tell someone the story about a person who asks for his portion of his inheritance early from his dad, and then he, the son, having received this inheritance early, he moves to Vegas, proceeds to squander it on wild living, and very quickly ends up broke, addicted, living on the streets. When he hits bottom, he comes to his senses, he decides to go home, confess his foolishness to his dad, and ask to be taken back, not as a son, because he doesn't feel worthy of that anymore, but as a hired hand in the business, right? And when he gets home, the dad doesn't just forgive him, but welcomes him with this warm embrace so that he knows, the son, he knows that he's still deeply loved. So you have to tell that story to someone. But here's your problem. You can't use words, and this is going to be really hard for some of you, you can't use hand motions either. All you do is show someone a picture. Now, you have three options. Option one, option two, Option three, just turn to your neighbor real quickly and say, which picture would you choose? Go ahead, take a minute. It's a discussion question, right? So discuss, which one would you choose and why? I'm just curious. Okay, um, let's just take a little, I mean, this is a fun evening crowd, we're a small group. Let's take a little s survey. How many chose number one? Raise your hand. One, two, three. How many chose number two? One, two, three, four. How many chose number three? Woo, what a surprise. Not really. Like, I get it. 
they're all telling the story, but if you're, I would argue, though I'm not an artist, so here's the caveat, but I would argue if, you're, if the goal is clarity, that number three wins the day. Uh, here's what's interesting. All three of those are called Return of the Prodigal, right? So there are three works of art uh, articulating, interpreting the same events, and uh, one you see perfectly clearly, the other two, maybe, but maybe less so. It's open to debate, but maybe less so. But here's, here's why I wanted you to do this exercise. We're beginning a series, it's called Portrait, and the goal of the series is to help us collectively and individually represent Christ to the world. Like, represent. In other words, Paul says in Galatians 1.16, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. So God's desire is that every one of us in the room would, in our actual daily living, somehow be on this journey so that we're looking more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's why Paul says what he says, Galatians 1, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now, our calling then is to make Jesus' character visible to the world. And if we do that, we live into our calling as well as image bearers of God because we're made in God's image. We'll see this in a minute in Genesis 1. And, and so when I'm displaying the character of Jesus, because Jesus is, according to Colossians 1, the exact representation of God, if I look like Jesus, then I'm displaying God's image as well. Does that make sense? So if we look like Jesus, then uh, we're crossing social divides. We're absorbing hate and violence. We're serving. We're loving those who hate us. We're loving our enemies. We're going the second mile. We're turning the other cheek. We're preemptively forgiving the way that Jesus did on the cross, right? We don't wait for somebody to confess their sins. We preemptively forgive. Jesus looks for ways to bless every person he meets. Jesus challenges power structures in his day, especially religious ones so that people might see his message wasn't intended to create winners and losers, insiders and outsiders, like an upper spiritual crust and a lower class crust of pagans. Rather, Jesus came to declare and live out the reality of the message the angels declared on the night that Jesus was born. Remember what they said? Behold, it said to the shepherds, behold, I bring you what? Good news, great joy for who? The Calvinists? No. Good news, great joy for all people. Everybody right? Black, white, rich, poor, educated, illiterate, married, unmarried, homeowner, living in the streets, someone utterly free, someone who's addicted. There is literally no category of person to whom the good news does not apply. And our calling is to be as welcoming and hospitable and generous and healing and celebratory and just as Jesus was when he lived here in his humanity. That's our calling. Because that's how Jesus is seen. Jesus is seen through us. And it pleased God, Paul says, to, to make Jesus visible through me, Galatians 1.16. It pleases God to make Jesus visible through you as well, right? So if the church's calling is to make Jesus visible, then we'll just ask the question, how's the church been doing for 2,000 years at making the character of Jesus visible? And I would argue that we've had our moments of failure, and that would be an understatement, but it would be a true statement, right? We've had our moments of failure. When Ferdinand and Isabella told all Jews in Spain, 1492, 
that they can either convert to Christianity or leave. Oh, and by the way, if they leave, they can't take any of their possessions with them, then the picture of Christ is distorted. When African tribal leaders met with missionaries and said to them, you told us to close our eyes and pray with you, and we did, but when we opened our eyes, we realized you'd stolen our land, the picture of Christ is distorted. When the church is silent in Germany as worship of the state is elevated to the status of idolatry and Jewish people are disappearing, the image of Christ is distorted. When we say to people, you're welcome to come be a part of the story of hope that God is writing in the world, but first adopt all of our values and ethics before you worship here, the picture of Christ is distorted. When we hoard instead of give, when we consume instead of uh, steward the earth's resources, when we're greedy instead of generous, when we preach integrity and then misuse church funds or leverage our positions of power to use people sexually or emotionally or financially, when we obsess over who's in and who's out and make the gospel only good news for some, particularly those who agree with us, when we jump in bed with any political party in our pursuit of power, if we do any one of these and a thousand other things, every time we do this, Christ is seen a little less clearly. And this should make us angry because the, 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 the fallout of our failure to represent Christ with accuracy is that 99% of the people in our city who are driving by right now having no interest in the church, ranging from apathy to disdain, are in that camp not because they've rejected Jesus, they have rejected our culturally contrived distortion of Jesus, an Americanized, politicized distortion that looks nothing like the real Jesus. This is a huge problem. I shared with many of you earlier in the year that last spring, a neighbor of mine asked, what are you preaching on the fall? And I said, we're going to do this series about representing Christ. And she asked me to explain that a little bit. And I said, well, I, I'm convinced that most people don't know who Jesus really is anymore because people have a distorted image of Christ. What do you mean? And this is what I said. I said, well, you know, Jesus, he's, if, you, if you really look at Jesus, Jesus is about generosity. Jesus is about nonviolence. Jesus is about laying down weapons. Jesus is about crossing social divides. Jesus is about caring for the least of these. Jesus is about uh, touching the outcast and those who are the very fringes of society and moving them toward wholeness. Jesus is about freedom and justice and joy and peace and hope and generosity. And this is what she said to me. Literally, this is what she said. You're kidding, right? I don't know anything about that Jesus because the Jesus she knows, she receives through the filters of our culture. And the filters of our culture via evangelical Christianity are presenting an utterly other Jesus than that Jesus. Does that make sense? And to the extent that that Jesus is rejected, it just fries me. Sorry, I don't like to be that guy who pounds the pulpit. But it, it just, it fries me because it makes me both angry and sad that people are missing the real deal because they never even get a chance to see it because what they've rejected is what they presume to be the real deal. <laughs> so that's why we're doing this series because we want to spend some weeks reframing Jesus. And each week we're going to take a look at a distortion of Jesus and then dive into the scriptures to see what a clearer view might look like, right? So the first distortion we're going to consider this evening uh, is <clears throat> kind of the view of what is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And uh, often, the, we hear the gospel framed as a transaction. You were born into sin, and as a result, you're God's enemy. 
But the good news is that God poured out all of God's wrath on his son Jesus so that when God sees you, God doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus. And as a result, you are uh, declared, uh, and this is a theological language, but this is kind of, this is what I heard as a kid growing up. You're declared righteous, righteous. And it's like, it's called this positional righteousness. In other words, you're not actually righteous. You still sin all the time. God's still mad at you, but, but what God sees is Jesus, and God pours out all the wrath on Jesus so you don't have to take the bullet because Jesus took the bullet for you so that now you know you're going to go to heaven when you die. So that's the gospel. And then what do you do with that? Well, A, get your hand stamped. Good news. Now, your job is to go and tell everybody else that God is mad at them too. But that there's good news that Christ took the bullet, and if they too will believe, they too can get their hands to heaven and go to heaven uh, when they die. This is a very kind of transactional, redemption-centered Christianity, the goal of which is for us to pr- like face the inevitably, inevitability of death in peace, knowing we're not going to burn in hell forever. But in the meantime, until we die, our job is to convince everyone else of this same story so that everyone else will get their hand stamped too so that as many people as possible can move from hell to heaven. This is called lifeboat theology. The whole world is utterly, utterly corrupt and sinking like the Titanic. And even though you're actually as much a, the, a part of the problem as anyone, if you jump in the lifeboat that is Jesus by saying the sinner's prayer, then you won't sink with the ship. This is just a distortion, right? It's not that there's no truth in there. There's some truth in there. But this picture misses the real answer to the question of what's the point of the Christian life? The point is not to get to heaven. That is entirely incidental, right? So the best way to identify distortions is to look at the real deal. And we're going to look at the real deal tonight by uh, looking at God's intent for humans as seen in three chapters. Chapter one, God's intent for humanity in Genesis. Chapter two, our spiritual problem. Chapter three, God's solution found in Christ. So I'm gonna try and do something this evening, and I hope it works. Can we see if we can make this thing work? That's not what I'm after, (laughs) although that's cool. Uh, I have an iPad here that I was gonna draw on. If I draw, oh, oh, there we go, okay, good. That's not what I wanted to draw, though, so that's too bad. But here we go. Now, this is what I do when I go teach places. I take my iPad. So I'm trying this with you guys in the evening here, and I'm hoping it'll be fun, because I actually enjoy, like I'm a visual learner, right? So here we go. So back in, so we're in chapter one. Chapter one, and we're in Genesis now. God's intent for humanity, right? So we know from Genesis 1.26 that when God created humans, we're made what? In God's image, right? And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we get a more fully developed theology of creation. And this is what we discover in Genesis chapter 2. God gave us bodies. So our bodies are created from the dust of the ground. So we, have a, we all have bodies, Right? And then it says, oh, by the way, if God made your body, then this is just a point. Your body is good. That means your, the, your appetites are a gift from God. That means your sexuality is good. That means uh, food is good. 
That means your capacity to know pain and enjoy pleasure. These are all good things. The fact you enjoy hiking or skiing, even if you like golf, that's also good. It can, it's possible that it could be good, right? So, so your body contains all, all these seeds of joy and meaning and calling. Then, this is what we read, God breathed into these bodies the, the oops, let's do this a different way. Oops, oops. We've got to make sure we're doing this right. God breathed into these bodies the spirit I'll get this to work. The spirit of life. The, it says he breathed into our bodies the breath of life, but in the Hebrew language, breath and spirit are synonymous, right? So you have a, you have a body and you have a spirit, right? And then this is what we read. When the spirit and the body are joined together, it says uh, humans became living souls, so you have a soul as well. Now what's your soul? Well, your soul is that invisible part of you, but it's like your mind and your emotions, and your will. And this is, this is just the way it works, okay? So now, to, to be made in God's image, uh, what people will see is what you present in your bodies, right? So when Stephanie sings, just, uh, in my opinion, tremendous gifts vocally and as a worship leader, but that's, that's, we know that because of her body, because of her vocal cords and her countenance and the way that she leads us. But what comes out of the body comes through, how do I, I'm going to try and do this a different way. What comes out of the body comes through the soul. Does that make sense? Like, before it came out of her, it was in her. <laughs> it was in her mind. It was in her emotions. It was in her affect. With me so far, still? But what came into the soul derived from the spirit. Okay? So the spirit feeds the soul... And then the soul determines what is made visible in the body. That's, you know, been God's intent from the beginning of time. And when this works right, then what comes out here in our bodies are things like justice, creativity, mercy, Joy, generosity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We look like we end up looking like Jesus. So far, so good. Okay, all it's, it's great. And and so we like if you go if you looked at, back through the history of humanity, you see many times when this has actually worked. Right? I mean, when Handel writes Messiah in 17 days, in his body he's displaying the glory of God. When um, uh, Rembrandt paints that painting, he's displaying the glory of God. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer receives confessions from the guards who are holding him prisoner in Germany just before his execution and offers them forgiveness in Jesus' name, he's displaying the glory of God, the character of God. When a man with cancer draws near to God and lives out his last days before crossing over with dignity, he's displaying the glory, the glory of God. When Stephanie sings, glory of God. When Abigail plays guitar, glory of God. When, when there's a teacher in the room teaching and imparting wisdom, glory of God. 
Like this is, this is the way it's supposed to work, right? When my aunt, my, excuse me, my great aunt, uh, wakes up from a coma just before she dies, there's a group of people sitting in the room, she blesses every one of them by name, and then she says, and now Jesus is coming for me, I need to leave, and she closes her eyes and dies. That's the glory of God. I mean, it's undeniable, right? And then when you show up in your marriage, when you raise children, when you care for the other, when you're the presence of Christ at work, when you're working your craft, whether it's writing code or painting or doing, being a physician or whatever it is you're doing, God is made visible out here in the body, but what's made visible out here in the body is first kind of uh, fermenting in the soul, if I can say that way, and it derives from the Spirit. So that's God's intent for humanity. So when Paul says, in, uh, again in Galatians 1.16, that it was God's desire to reveal Christ in me, Paul is saying, in my body, I'm displaying the character of Jesus. It's uniquely me. It's not, I'm not an exact replica of Jesus because I, Paul, have a personality, just like I, Richard, have a personality that's different than Nathan's personality. So we're different, but, the, but our display is a facet of the glory of God. That's, that's the goal. So that's chapter one, right? All good. Now, if we go to chapter two, some bad things start happening. In chapter two, we come to, to um, Genesis three, And in Genesis 3, this is what we know, sin enters into the equation, right? You know the story, probably Adam and Eve and the apple and all that stuff. If you don't know it, it's there in the Bible, and you can read it. But that, that, it's, it's there, you read it, yeah. So, uh, uh, but what happens in that story that's significant is uh, our capacity to, to be image bearers is uh, vastly uh, corrupted. We'll say it that way. And here's the reason why. Again, if we have all three of these parts, spirit, soul, body, the, all the trouble begins uh, in the middle here, right? In the, in the um, I'm trying to do this in some way. Like all the troubles in here, like it says in Romans 1, our hearts were darkened. So that's why I'm doing it that way. So something's happened to our spirit. Now, theologians debate, did the spirit die? Is it just corrupted in some way? Is it distorted? Pick your word. Doesn't matter. The point is, it's no longer able to fulfill its primary function, which is to, to, to govern your soul, whoops, <laughs> to govern your soul so that your body then ends up displaying Christ. It, can't, it doesn't do that anymore. And you, you see that because in Gen, by Genesis 4, uh, as humanity begins to kind of take off, remember the story, there's a story of Cain and Abel, if you know that story, and then in Genesis 4, humanity begins to take off, and uh, t two things happen in Genesis 4, really telling. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, we, we become super civilized as a species, right? It's Genesis 4 where you get agriculture and cities and art, and, and uh, metallurgy, and tools, and industry, and all that stuff. So we go from being kind of hunter-gatherers to this now uh, 
look, I mean, look, here we are. We're in this building. We're, we're, it could be raining. It could be snowing outside. We, who cares? We're like, we're super comfortable, right? And we have access to all kinds of great medical things. And we're not afraid that a lion's going to eat us. And you could ask me right now, what's the weather in Nigeria? And I could tell you. Like, how amazing is that? So on the one hand, because we're made in the image of God, like, we're, we're doing great things. And also, in Genesis 4, uh, what do you see? In that same chapter, murder, retribution, violence, infidelity, arrogance. So, so we're developing great capacity over here to do amazing things. But the one thing, the one thing that we cannot conquer, we cannot conquer what? The human soul. We can't. Like there's something, there's something wrong inside of me. It's a huge problem. And the reason I can't conquer my own soul is because my spirit, to go back to the thing here, my spirit is broken in some way. So the spirit that's intended to feed the soul is now broken. So, and that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a real, that's a real problem. And, and, and that's why we have just a, the whole host of presenting problems in the body in spite of the fact that we're really smart as a species. We're super smart and super addicted and super divided and super violent and, and, and super fearful and super irrational. Why? Because what's presenting in the body is coming from a sick soul and the soul is sick because the spirit is at the, at, at the least distorted if not absolutely annihilated. In other words, we've lost our north star, our guide, our reference point. So now what happens is the soul develops, the soul develops in uh, distorted ways, right in here, right? And remember, if you remember what I said earlier, the soul is like, that's your personality. And so it consists of, um, right, mind, will, emotions. And God's intent would be that this soul stuff is fed from the spirit. Like the spirit is feeding the soul. But if my heart is dark, then what's feeding my soul is dark, and then my soul gets distorted. And then this just presents in a million destructive ways. Like uh, if you watch uh, the new, like local news, there's a whole series yesterday on heroin addiction in Seattle. It's a huge problem, a huge problem. Well, where does that come from? Like, why are, why are people making choices in their body here? Making, people are making choices in their body because their soul is deeply wounded and painful. And I'm choosing to self-medicate in my body in a, in a really bad way, right? And so the problems that present out here in the body range from absolutely suicidal and hugely destructive to somewhat mild. But regardless, uh, I, am, I am failing in my body to live the life for which I'm created because my soul is broken and my soul is broken because my spirit is, is distorted. I'll give you one example. Remember here, mind, will, emotions. This is the way we are. I think too much. You can think too much. Does everyone agree? You can think too much? I think too much. I, and one of, the, one of my presenting problems is when I uh, go to bed at night, I'm tired but as soon as I lay down, who else has this problem? I'm just curious. As soon as I lay down, I start thinking. Raise your hand. And I have a hard time getting to sleep because I'm thinking about everything in the world. And, and this week, 
Wednesday, this reached a point of annoyance for me because my wife is exactly the opposite. She hits the pillow and she's asleep instantly, like within two minutes. So before her two minutes was up this week, I talked to her and I said, what are you thinking about right now? Because I was just curious. I don't think we've had this conversation 40 years of marriage. I go, what do you think about just as you're going to bed? She goes, I don't think about anything. I just go to sleep. I go, how can you not think about anything? And then she says to me, how can you think about anything? It's sleep time. Don't think. Sleep. And then she was curious. She goes, what are you thinking about? And I had a whole list. I said, you want to know what I've been thinking about the last 10 minutes? Look at A, uh, we're trying to build a a tiny house in the backyard. Are we going to get the concrete poured before it snows? B, impeachment hearing. C, sermon on Sunday. D, you're driving to Leavenworth tomorrow. Are your tires good? Because there's snow in the pass. E, F, G, H. Like, finally, she said, stop. She said, you think too much. I said, I'm not done. She said, shut up and go to sleep. And then she turned over. <laughs> like, that's mild. But it's this, like, it's a, this, this problem in the body comes from a problem in the soul that comes from a problem in the spirit. Am I making sense to you? So our spirit became distorted. And, 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 and so we lost in our capacity to react out here, like instead of love, fear. Instead of generosity, greed. In, 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 instead of peace, anxiety. Instead of freedom, addiction. Instead of courage, fear, etc., etc. We could go on, but you get it, right? And then that, then, then that ends up presenting in racism, sexism, classism, political tribalism, church splits, unhealthy sexual choices, teenagers cutting themselves, dramatic rises in rates of suicide, addictive means of of self-medicating away fear and pain, whether it's heroin or uh, opioids or vaping or porn or anything else, life is hard, we don't want to deal with it, and so in our bodies, we get addicted to stuff. But But the problem isn't just the body, and it's not just the body and the soul. The problem goes all the way back here to the, like the headwaters. The spirit is busted up. Uh, so, remember, Genesis 1 said our vocation, our biggest job is to be image bearers. In other words, that our lives would display the character of God. So imagine that an alien discovered Genesis chapter 1 in the Bible and this colony of aliens sends somebody like down to earth saying, hey, we know God is invisible, but we just discovered God created a species who display God's character. There's a species made in God's image. We don't know what God is like. Go assess humanity and come back and tell us what God is like. Like if an alien came from another planet and looked at humanity and, and then came back and reported what God is like, what would that alien say? That, that alien would say stuff like this. Well, I mean, God's pretty creative and smart. God can make cool stuff. But on the other hand, God's unfaithful to those that God loves. God violently opposes God's enemies. God's proud. God consumes without regard for the earth that God created. God's a liar. God cheats. God's unfaithful. God's petty. God's greedy. God's insecure. God's tribal. God's prone to tantrums. God's quick to, 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 to violence. God's addicted, and what's even worse, too often, 
that very same picture is painted by Christ followers. The only difference being we also go to church. Like one guy in a ceremony class that I was teaching one time, I was teaching apologetics, and, and he said, well, here's, here's the biggest problem I have with defending the faith. When I try and articulate the validity of Jesus, people point to Christians and say, that's why I don't believe. And this guy says to me, why are Christians such, and then he used a word, and you would know the word, whatever, doesn't matter. Why are Christians that way? And why are we? Here's why. Because somewhere along the way, we were taught that uh, spiritual maturity is our capacity to articulate a doctrinal statement and create a transaction whereby we confess our sins, Jesus forgives our sins, we're declared positionally righteous, our hand is stamped, and now, as long as I believe the Apostles' Creed, then I'm in. Done. Job done. So I believe in God the Father, creator of everything, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, risen, coming again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the church. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Check, check, check. Whatever, if I believe all of that, but I don't make eye contact, and I, and I never open my wallet, and I have to always be right, and I never practice hospitality, and I don't know my neighbor's name, and I'm terrified of people whose sexuality is different than me, and I never even am willing to explore the possibility that I might be complicit in systemic racism if I am blind and tiny and afraid. I don't look like Jesus, no matter how good my doctrinal statement is. That's a problem. And that's this problem. And that's why we're doing this series. So if out here, the Holy Spirit wants the eraser to be working, not the pen. <laughs> if out here, I'm presenting ugliness, and at the same time, you know, I'm carrying a great big Bible. That's a Bible. It's a terrible Bible, but it's a Bible. Yeah, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if I'm, if I'm doing all the Christian walk, Christian talk, Christian stuff, and I don't look like Jesus at all, and there's no journey transformation, I am complete. Not only am I missing the point, but look at uh, Jesus said it this way, if salt loses its saltiness, it is what? Good for nothing. So, we've seen the ideal, the vision. We've seen the problem. Uh, what's the solution? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Chapter 3, the solution. It's our text that we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says this. Now I'm reading from the message. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you whole and put you together. And then watch, this is, I, I so love how Paul articulates this. May you be put together whole. How will that, what will that look like, Paul? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. First, you'll be sanctified in your spirit. And then because your spirit is now nothing less than, you know, all the love and joy and goodness and brightness of Jesus himself, then your soul will begin to look like Christ as well, you see? And so your soul will take on the character of Jesus. Everybody, and it'll take time, but you'll begin to look more and more and more like Christ in your soul. Like 
your mind, your will, and your emotion. You begin to think differently, feel differently, act differently, because the spirit is going to bleed into your soul if you let it. All the trials are going to be happening in your soul. We'll get to that later. But then, if, if this new spirit is transforming your soul, don't you love this? It's also going to then what? It's going to bleed out into your body, isn't it? And so now you're going to start using your time differently, and you're going to make different choices with what you do with your money. You're going to, you're going to how you view your body, uh, what you do with your body, how you view your sexuality, what you do with your sexuality. All this stuff's going to change. That is, that is Paul's prayer. May the God who makes everything whole make you whole. And where does wholeness begin? Spirit. And then... Spirit having been made whole, right? Spirit, soul, body, all three. And so here we see God's purpose. It's not to get you to heaven. It's to make you whole. And how do I know that? Well, you know this story, Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty had a what? Great fall. So have you. Genesis 3. We always have had a great fall. And no ism is ever going to put us back together. Cap- not capitalism. Not republicanism. Not democratism. Not uh, uh, nationalism. Not communism. Not socialism. Not Hinduism. Not Buddhism. Not Calvinism. Not Methodism. Not Presbyterianism. Not Bethanyism. The only way that you get a new spirit is this is Jesus. A person that now must indwell you. It's the only way. And then, this is what it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we then, having been filled with the Spirit of Christ, might become in our bodies, the way we actually live, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. So now we're on this kind of journey whereby I have a new spirit and my spirit is transforming my soul and my soul then, my soul is doing it. There's a battle going on my soul, but when, the, when I submit to the spirit of Jesus, then in my body, I begin to present Christ. That's just the way it works. I'll give you, you know, one silly example, but it's a real example from this week, so it's most recent. So uh, my wife and I buy meat in eastern Washington and there's this sausage that we love and it's called grandpa's sausage, Right? It's very, very good. And if you're a vegetarian, I apologize for this illustration. Just check out for a minute. It's okay. But um, we love the sausage. And so on Wednesday morning, I was fixing uh, breakfast. And uh, as is customary, there were three pieces of sausage in the frying pan. And uh, my wife eats one, and I eat two. That's just, we, we always do it that way. But uh, whether wittingly or unwittingly, unwittingly, one piece was small and two pieces were rather large. And I'm the one cooking breakfast and serving breakfast, so I get to choose. She gets one, but then the question is, which one do I give her? And like, uh, there's an unredeemed piece of my humanity that wants to give her that smallest piece, right? And I, can, and I try and justify it in many dark ways in my mind, right? Oh, yeah, she doesn't need it. I'm running today. She's not, you know, blah, 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 right? So I want to give her the, that piece. And then the, the other thing that's going on at the same time, I believe, is the Spirit of God here is, 
is working to redeem my soul, saying, hey, wait a minute, Richard, do you know what? Actually, the kind thing to do in your body, like in your body, right now, if you want to look like Jesus, give her the biggest piece of those three sausages, right? And then, and then the unredeemed part of me says, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep uh, the two big pieces for me. And then the Spirit of Jesus says, really? Like, uh, I'm speaking to you right now. Are you going to do this the right way? And then I say, okay, I won't give her the smaller piece. I'll give her the middle piece. And then the Spirit of Jesus says, no, no, look, the right thing to do here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, this is a st- all, almost ridiculous illustration. And yet, it's the point. Because here, when Jesus lives in you, stuff, be- if... If Jesus really kind of given rain to express life, things begin to happen out here in your body differently. You have a different relationship with your body to begin with. Different relationship with money. You're going to let somebody else choose a bigger piece of pie, I promise you. Because that's Jesus in you. You're going to release your grip on money. You're going to walk over to your neighbor's house and learn their names. You're going you're gonna to stand with people on the edge of society. You may even sign up right after this service to go be a mentor because that's what Jesus looks like. You're going to love your enemies, including your political enemies, including your theological enemies. You're going to change your relationship with food. You're going to change your relationship with your sexuality. You won't be fear-based anymore. You won't be shame-based anymore. You won't be self-pity-based anymore. God's going to move you slowly. But inexorably, the spirit of Jesus will conquer your, your, your spirit so that your mind, your will, and your emotions are transformed. And when that happens, in your body, you will begin to look more and more and more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could get our ticket stand and go to heaven? No. Christ became sin so that you and I might become tonight the very righteousness of God, that we would live differently in our bodies. That's the goal. And, 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 and that's what the world needs right now. People driving by. I mean, there's an article in today's New York Times. I'm paraphrasing the title, but I think it's something to this effect. The age of happiness is over. Like it's a very dark article, Right? Age of happiness is over. Like, pe- no one's happy anymore. I mean, that's overstating it, but, but it's the thesis. Why? Oh, well, just look around. Global warming and political division and economic uncertainty and, you know, tribalism and people withdrawing into the little small enclaves of people who think like them, look like them, act like them, believe like them, lobbing verbal grenades a- a- across the wall. They're a loss of hospitality, a loss of generosity, a loss of simplicity, Loss, loss, loss. Where does it end? This is where it ends. With people who stand up and say, you know what? I'm turning my life over to Christ and I'm going to allow Christ in my body to display Christ to the world. There is no greater adventure than that. And that's, that's my wish for Bethany and for you. But the, where that has to start is with confession and lament. And so tonight... We're going to do two things down here. We're going to receive and celebrate at the Lord's table that we've been granted the capacity to display Christ because this is the continual reminder. What? Remember your spirit? Who lives in you? Christ. This is my body for you. This is my blood for you. 
Never forget. I, Christ, live in you. When you believe it, when you don't. Uh, when you live according to my power, when you resist my power. When you succeed, when you fail, I live in you. So come, receive with gratitude. And then as you pass by, I'm going to ask if God has laid on your heart to confess that you write on these poster boards. We've been doing this all day. And what I'm going to ask you to confess is both collective and individual. Here's what I mean by collective confession. We, your church, have misrepresented Christ when, and then you just name whatever it is, when we fought too much, when we got into doctrinal wars, when whatever. We have misrepresented. And then maybe it's personal. I have misrepresented when, and then you name that. Anonymously, of course. <laughs> but I invite you to do that with these poster boards uh, so that next week, then, we'll have those available for you to read in the back. And even tonight, you can read them as you pass by. Come receive communion, and then also stop by and offer a word here as God lays it on your heart, something that we collectively can own. Because as we confess our sins, what does it say for Sean? God's faithful to forgive us, restore us to this path of ongoing transformation so that from glory to glory, we can represent with greater clarity the character of Jesus. That's why we gather. Let's pray. Father, meet us now as we receive by way of remembrance this beautiful declaration that you are not only for us, but that you have given yourself utterly to us, that you live in us, that our spirit is joined with your spirit. What an amazing miracle. We celebrate that as we receive this table. And then, Father, hear our prayers of, of confession, of shortcoming, of failure, and free us, Jesus. Uh, to live in a way that represents your heart with greater clarity. We'll thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.